The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. We here at The Springs are a church that's being transformed in the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. And we do that three ways. We're gathering in the name of the Father, by growing in the image of the Son, and by going in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the year of grow, as Kelly said earlier. And Brett and I... uh, Brett began a sermon series that we're in called One in Christ, A Call to Unity. So this morning as we begin, let's stand together and read together from our text Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, as always, when we come to your word, we give you thanks. For down deep, we know that we don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so confessing that that this morning, God, I pray for ears to hear. I pray for hearts to follow. And I pray for lives and bodies that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. For it's the name of your word to us, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In the early 20th century, Europe had been reeling from the Napoleonic Wars in the early part of the the previous century. And all the violence that had gone on before that. And so in light of those wars and that devastation, countries began forming alliances. In fact, it was Russia and France that first led the way to form an alliance, which later Great Britain joined into. And then it was Germany and Italy with Austria and Hungary, which was kind of together at the time, they formed an alliance. And unfortunately, these alliances weren't about unity, really. They were symptoms of actually something else. They were symptoms of mistrust. Because Russia and France, and eventually Great Britain, didn't, tr- didn't trust Germany and Austria, Hungary, and Italy. And vice versa, that group didn't trust the other one. And so you saw these countries coming together in unity, but that wasn't really about unity. It was really a symptom of the mistrust, the distrust they had for one another. Also in the early 20th century, there was this rise in nationalism. And nationalism at that time taught that national pride and glory should be a priority. 
And so what was beginning to develop was this sense of national pride. This pride in one's own identity that pitted one group against the other and caused animosity. And at the same time, many of these European countries had imperialist goals in mind. Each country sought power and influence in places like Africa, where they wanted to gain some edge, both in resources and in power and in political influence. And there's what was this scramble for these places around the world. And that competition for power and influence led to hostility between countries. So you have mistrust, pride, and power. And a combination of all those three things led to, on June 28, 1914, the Archbishop, I mean the Archduke, the Archduke of Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated. And that marked the beginning of World War I. Distrust, pride, and a hunger for power led to what is called the Great War that killed between 15 to 19 million people around the world. But unfortunately, this has been the story for Europe for over a thousand years or more. Did you know that Europe has not had, the continent of Europe has not had 50 years of sustained peace throughout the whole continent in the past millennia? And if you want to affirm that, look what's going on in Europe right now. Europe has not known 50 years of sustained peace in over a thousand years or more. Distrust, pride, a power, a hunger for power has led to division, hostility, and unfortunately, much of the time, in that past thousand years, the church has been right in the mix of all of it. But the good news, according to Ephesians, the gospel, according to Ephesians, is this. Ephesians 1, 8 through, 8 through 10 says this. With all wisdom and understanding... God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Jesus Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. Here's the good news according to Ephesians. Here's the good news according to Paul in the book of Ephesians that God is working to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus Christ. This is why when we get into our text for today, Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, it says this. 
It says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And this is the calling that you and I have received. To be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is what we're called to. Because there's one body, one Spirit. There is one Spirit. Paul gives us a picture of this one spirit sprinkled throughout the book of Ephesians. And as I looked at this text and in this sermon series, and today is about that one spirit, I thought, what in the world do you say about this spirit? Not that I don't know what to say, but there's so much that I could say But what is Paul saying? Well, he says a lot, but he, he says at least this. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. His will to unite all things. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Well, Paul writes this and he says, when you believed, you were marked with a seal. That spirit. He's writing, of course, to the church in Ephesus. Which if we know something about the church in Ephesus, we know that they produced a lot of amulets and trinkets and things to ward off the spirits and the powers and the principalities. That was just part of what they did. That was part of their trade. It was part of their beliefs. It was part of who they were. It was part and woven into their fabric of their culture. And of course, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he actually talks a lot about this. He, in Ephesians, he mentions the powers and the principalities, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He mentions this several times in the, the letter to the Ephesians. And so, when he says this, when he says that you were marked or that you were sealed, this is language that the Christians would have known in Ephesus. For oftentimes they would get tattoos or markings that would ward off and protect them from these spirits. They would often buy amulets or trinkets or something that would seal them 
This language of sealing that would seal them or protect them, which is the language in there from these spirits. From these powers and principalities that would cause misfortune, whether it be economic or personal disease, or that would just cause problems between people. And for Paul, he says, it's not a, a, a mark that you get on your body or an amulet that you wear around your neck, but he says, you were marked with the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is protection against those powers and principalities that divide us. We got to be honest. We might not use the language of powers and principalities, but there are powers and principalities. And we don't have to name them as specific people. I'm talking about their spirits in the air that want to divide people. I feel like that's such an obvious statement in the age that we live in, that it doesn't even need to be said. Can you feel those spirits? Can you feel those powers and principalities in your life that want to divide? But Paul says when you believe that you are marked, sealed, and protected from those powers and principalities that seek to divide, And he goes on to say this about the Spirit, chapter 2, 14 through 18. He says, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, between Jew and Gentile thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Again, Paul says something here about that spirit and what he says is, is that if you want to know how you have access to God, there's only one way you have access to God. It's through the Spirit. So in light of all Paul's talking about in terms of Jew and Gentile here, here's the ways we don't have access to God. Our nationality does not get us an access to God. Our gender does not get us access to God. Our ethnicity, our political party, those things do not give us access to God. Only God's Spirit does. How much education you have or don't have, how much knowledge you have or don't have, how much money and status you have Paul says, no, 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 no. None of those things get you access to God. 
It is the one spirit that gets you access to God. It's not through obeying the law or through having certain practices that get you access to God. Circumcision does not get you access to God. But D, there's just more prayer. As important as that is. Neither does more Bible reading get you more access to God. Neither does more authentic worship. I can't say, oh, I worship more, I'm closer to God. No, that is, that's not what gives me access to God. All those things are important, but that's not what gets you access to God. You have access to God by one spirit. Your moral character doesn't get you access to God. The morally righteous doesn't have any more access than the one that has a little bit less righteousness. Orthodoxy. I don't know about you, but I'm always right. Except when I'm in an argument with my wife. But besides that, with the rest of you, I am always right. Because who doesn't think that they're right? That as right as I think that I am, being more right doesn't give me more access to God than it gives to you. We only have access to God by the one spirit that we did not produce and that we do not possess so that no one can boast, Paul says. Therefore, our oneness is not dependent on our education, our lack thereof, our nationality, our gender, our ethnicity, our political party, our economic status. It's not based on our practices or lack thereof, more prayer, more service, more Bible reading, as important as those things are. It's not based on our understanding of the, the latest hot topic and belief and discussion on the day. It is based on our unity and our access to God is based on one spirit. That's what God says. Our oneness is dependent on the one spirit that gives us all access to the Father. You have access to God by that one spirit. And Paul goes on to say this in Ephesians 3, 14 and 19 through 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love which surpasses all knowledge and all understanding 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. One of my favorite writings from St. Augustine. There's so many writings that he has, but one of my favorite ones is when he's trying to explain the Trinity, which is always a difficult thing to explain. One God, three persons. <clears throat> but in one of, he gives several different analogies of God and how the workings of God and the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work. And one of my favorites is he uses this analogy where he begins with this statement, with this fundamental belief that God is love. So, he goes on to explain that if God is love, that means there must be a lover. In order for love to exist, there has to be someone that loves. That's not hard to say because we say, yeah, God is love, God is a lover. But then he says, in order, if there's a lover, then there must be an object or, or something or someone that the lover loves. And so if there's a lover, there has to be a beloved. And if you have a lover and you have the beloved, then there must be the love that flows in between them. And what Augustine says is that God the Father is the lover. God the Son is the object of that love. He's the beloved. And that the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them. I love that. It's a beautiful image. And so Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is for us to be rooted and established in love. Or if you take Augustine's analogy and you pull it in, that Paul's prayer for us is to be rooted and established in the Spirit, in that one Spirit, which is the love that God has for His Son and that flows back to God, and it's that love that we share. When Kim and I were planning to move to Uganda, we did a period of discernment, and I felt called to go to Uganda. I felt this was God's will for my life. I felt I was obeying something. Kim didn't feel called to Uganda, surprisingly. But the blessing that I think we had in this discernment, because someone once asked her, would you feel called to be a missionary in Africa? She was like, no. I don't feel called to go to Africa, but I do feel called to Ben. Thank goodness. I remind her of that when, you know, she's questioning that call. 
And then things don't go well when I remind her of that. But I often wonder what would happen if I would have felt called to Uganda and she's like, nope, I don't think that's God's will for our lives. Or if it was the other way, she felt called, felt like this was an obedience thing, and I was like, nope, I don't think so. I wonder what would happen if one of us would have felt called, if I would have felt called and thought, this is the way we obey, and she said, no, this is the way we obey. I wonder if that would have played out. I wonder what you think we should have done. Do you think we should have gotten a divorce? I'm wondering if that even came up in your mind when I asked that question. But how many times is when the church has disagreed on its calling to obedience, how many times does the church divorce? I know couples that if after they were married, they come to very different places in terms of their belief about things in the world. What do you think? Should they get a divorce? Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It's not even the thing that pastorally I even think to, when I'm working with people, I don't think, oh yeah, yeah, maybe you should get divorced. But this is exactly what the church does every, almost every single time. That's our inclination. I know families that parents and children come to very different understandings about topics and issues and very important things. I'm not saying they're not important, they're very important. And they're like, what do we do? And never does it cross my mind to say, yeah, disown them, don't, don't have anything to do with them. But this is exactly what we do in the church. This is our temptation almost every time. When we come to those conflicts. We do this all the time with issue X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. In Ephesians 4.2, Paul says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, and patience, all of these are attributes of love. All of these are attributes of the Holy Spirit. In Europe, at the turn of the 20th century, you could argue that Europe was rooted in pride, power, and mistrust. And the things that caused the divisions in World War I are the same things that caused divisions in our lives. Pride, hunger for power, and basic mistrust. But if we're marked or sealed, protected by that one spirit, if we're rooted in love or rooted in the spirit, then instead of being rooted in pride 
that our life should be rooted in humility and the Spirit's humility. That one Spirit. That instead of being rooted in power and just wanting to have the upper hand, that our lives are rooted in gentleness. That instead of being rooted in mistrust and suspicion, instead we're patient. That our lives are rooted in patience that we can learn to trust someone. That maybe even while we think they might have it wrong, that maybe we trust that their intentions are good. Or if nothing else, we trust in this one spirit and his love and in his, his unity. This kind of unity Ephesians says, is going to happen in heaven and on earth. That's the good news. It is going to happen. And Ephesians says that the first place that God is working this whole project of bringing all things together is right in this room. One in Christ, it's a call to unity. There is one spirit. And the promise is that we have been sealed or protected by this one spirit. It is this spirit, it is God's love that unifies us and gives us access to God. We can be rooted in God's love that is so wide, that's so long that's so deep and so high that is a love that surpasses our knowledge and even the depths of our understanding. So that we may be filled with the unity that is the measure of the fullness of God. Let's stand. Sing.